creed for the month of December for, for Advent, basically, is uh, the Nicene Creed rather than, we'll, we'll go back to the Westminster in January. Christian, what do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God of God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven and he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. O oh God, above all the so-called gods, God who alone is worthy of our worship, who is majestic beyond all understanding, who is larger and stronger and deeper and wider than we could ever perceive. O oh God who is our only refuge and our only strength in times of trouble. We come before you this morning and we lay ourselves at your feet and we seek to worship you by beholding you, by seeing you high and lifted up in your temple. We seek to know you intimately. We ask that you would speak to us and we ask, O oh Lord, that you would direct us and correct us and encourage us and train us to be like you. We ask that you would teach us to roll all of our cares off of our own puny shoulders and onto the strong back of Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would take our prayers and you would perfect them and bring them to the Father. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and pray within us with groanings too deep for words when we don't know what to say or to do. Lord Jesus, be merciful to us. And we know, Lord, for you have promised mercy. And you have said that when we have seen you, we have seen the Father. And we know of your tenderness and the joy that you take in your people. You are high and holy, and yet you are meek and lowly. Father, we come before you this morning and we lay our needs and our desires at your feet. 
We pray, Father, this morning for those who are not with us for one reason or another. We ask that you would keep them as the apple of your eye, that you would protect them in body and in mind and in spirit, and that you would see them back here among us safely in a subsequent week. We pray for those who are struggling with illness, perhaps even illness unto death, and we ask, O Lord, that you would look with mercy and compassion upon them, that you would ease their suffering while they live, and that you would take them gently home when it is time, and that you would be glorified in all things, and your people would be edified by your glory. To that end, we pray, Father, for Ruth Creighton, and we ask that you would raise her up, and if that's not to be, that you would take her quickly home. And we pray for her family, her nephew and her brother and her sister. And we, we pray, King Jesus, that you would be a comfort to them as they struggle, as they grieve, as they make decisions that are hard decisions. We pray, Lord Jesus, for those who are sick with ongoing struggles, for those who deal with arthritis or weakness of some kind or another, for those who find their bodies aging and they aren't as strong as they used to be and they're less confident to get out and the world seems to be closing in among them. We pray for those who are bereft of a partner, a husband or a wife who has been with them low these many years and, and they come to these holiday times and they can be times of great anguish because of memories. We ask that you would take the sting out of those memories and leave only the honey. We pray, King Jesus, for those who struggle with mental illness, for those who struggle with schizophrenia, for those who struggle with bipolar, for those who struggle with depression and anxiety. And we ask that you would minister to them in their hearts what is needful for their situation and have them help them look always to you and to see above the darkness your light. We pray, Lord Jesus, for our church, and we ask that you would preserve her. We pray that you would strengthen her in all graces. We pray that the light of the gospel would go forth from this place, not only from the pulpit, but from the lives of the people who sit in the pews. That we would come on a Sunday morning expecting to encounter the living God, and that we would encounter you in our worship and that we would be transformed by that and that any unbelievers who would come in here as guests would say, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. These are not people who are here to be entertained. These are not people who are here out of some kind of duty. This is not a social club. This is a place where the living God is worshiped in spirit and in truth and God is made visible and he is mighty and he is high and lifted up, and they would say, I want to fall on my face before that God and believe savingly in his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. We pray that as we behold you, that we would be transformed from one degree of glory into another such that our lives would become radiant, that we would be like Moses who communed with you face to face as a man speaks with his friend and as he left his face shone among the people. Let our faces shine too with your glory. We pray for this upcoming Christmas season for all the travel and all the uh, buying and selling and all the things that have to be done and, and there's all, often so much stress associated with it, Lord. We can get weary 
and uh, sometimes we think there's a, a great thing that needs to be done when only one thing is needful. Let us rest in the simplicity of just doing the one thing and being content with that. Let us find our times with our family and our friends to be times of richness and joy and love rather than times of strife. Let us create, Father, under your tutelage, wonderful memories for our children and our grandchildren such that they would look back upon them and say, there was a magic then. And it was a magic that flowed from God. It was enchanting and I miss it. And it makes me want to seek God. We pray for our children who might be walking astray or who might be thinking about it, whether they would be 16 or 60. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would cause our children to walk in the, in the right way and to name you as Lord and Savior and our grandchildren too. You have promised to be our God and the God of our children after us unto a thousand generations. So please, Lord, we pray to that end. There are other things that we could lift up. We live in a world that's ruined by disease and economic strife and military strife and so many things to be juggled and it baffles us to know what to do. So we're going to leave these things with you, the Lord of history. And we're going to be content to pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I'm going to ask the deacons to come forward with the plates and we will bless them and then they will collect the offering and we will sing the doxology. Do you like how I told you guys what to do? We thank you that you are the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have provided for us. We now make an offering of our gifts and our tithes, and we ask, O oh Lord, that you would be pleased. In Jesus' name, amen.
Seated. Our scripture this morning does not come from John 17, it comes from John 1, 1 through 5. what happened there. Uh, John 1, actually we're going to start with uh, verse 5, no, verse 4, verse 4, and read through verse 9. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us and that you would show us yourself in your word and that you would show us ourselves in your word. We don't come here to hear a man speak, but we say, Master, speak, thy servant heareth, waiting on thy gracious word. It's in Jesus' name and for his sake we ask it. Amen. Well, last week we dove into one of the shallower ends of the great deep pool that is the doctrine of God, and particularly the doctrine of the Trinity. And we began to familiarize ourselves with the profound mysteries of the Trinity, how there can be one God who exists eternally in three persons, and how there are hints of that, right? At the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, where God speaks to himself in the plural and says, let us do X, and then let us do why. And then at the creation of man, you get both the singular and the plural within one verse of each other. So in Genesis 1:26, God says, let us make man in our image. And in verse 27, it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God is an us and God is a he. And John introduces us to this entity, this being, whom he calls the Word. And the Word was both with God, and the Word was God, and the Word is the one through whom all things were made, we're told. The universe and everything in it, as well as the invisible spiritual realms, which I think are actually just another part of the universe. It's just that they exist in a way that we don't have regular access to at this moment, at least that we're aware of, though I suspect we actually have more uh, access than we think. But that's another sermon for another time. But regardless of of, of this, the Word made it all, all things visible and invisible, the Creed says. And the good parts he made. And the parts that were once good but have gone bad, he made, and he made them all. And it's all his. Whether any particular thing in existence happens to think it's his or not, it's all his. 
Now, thanks to the arrogance of the last 200 or 250 years of science pretending it knows things that it couldn't possibly know, we've become used to kind of a mental construct or a model. We've become used to looking at the world around us and the cosmos in which this world swims as basically a machine, something that God made, and he made it to run more or less by itself, and we tend to smuggle in the idea of God as completely separate from the machine that he created, the created order, standing outside of it, monitoring it, tinkering with it from time to time as he sees fit. But mostly the machine rumbles on under its own uh, steam. And science has seen its task for that time as understanding how all the parts of the machine work and how they relate to one another to keep the whole thing rumbling along. And science has labored to understand the machine so that we can learn how to control the machine and make it do things that we want it to do. And that's been the whole scientific enterprise since the times of Francis Bacon in the 1700s. But the picture that the Bible gives us is not the picture of the world and everything in it as a machine with lots of smaller machine-like parts working in concert to make up the whole. Rather, the Bible presents the universe more like a fountain. Back when I was in seminary in Louisville, Kentucky during the mid-1990s, there was this amazing fountain in the middle of the Ohio River. If you know Louisville at all, there's this bridge that goes across into Indiana and there's a Colgate factory, great big Colgate factory on one side and downtown Louisville on the other. And this fountain was perched basically right there in the middle of the Ohio River. And uh, it was really impressive. Uh, it was the world's, actually the world's largest floating fountain, and it shot water 425 feet in the air in a fleur-de-lis pattern. So we had four little fountains coming out, and then one great fountain coming out of the middle. It had a 900-horsepower motor, and it pumped 15,800 gallons of water per minute. And it was brightly lit with colored lights at night, and it was the brainchild of the owner of the Louisville Courier-Journal newspaper and his wife. And they donated $2.6 million to get the project started in the mid-1980s. And that fountain went into operation in 1988, and it was immediately apparent that it wasn't a very well-thought-out project. You see, the Ohio River is full of debris. And the intake and the output nozzles of this fountain were constantly getting clogged with debris. So it'd be going along shooting up at 425 feet, and then all of a sudden it'd be shooting 20 feet and pumping like mad. And people started, call, they started making fun of it. And finally in 1998, it just quit. And they sent some marine engineer out there to look at it, and they found that the transmission had exploded inside of it and it would be way too expensive to fix it. As a matter of fact, they stored it and they spent over $20,000 just storing it for some reason. And finally they sold it for $15,000 to a scrapper who towed it downriver a little bit to a place called New Albany, Indiana, and there it still sits today in a barge siding. And the guy that was supposed to scrap it couldn't figure out how to get it out of the water and it would cost him more than the steel was worth, so he just let it sit there. And you can see it today on Google Earth. 
if you want to. It's right there. It's this funny-looking octagon thing parked right next to a bunch of barges. When that thing was in good working order, it shot great quantities of river water into the air. When it got clogged, it shot less water into the air, and it didn't shoot the water as high. And when it broke down, it shot no water into the air. The impressive fountain only existed as long as the machinery was in good running order. The minute the machines stopped, the fountain of water no longer existed. Now the whole created order, angels, demons, planets, stars, elephants, ants, and most of all human beings are like a fountain that is constantly generated by God. Only instead of shooting forth water, the eternal Godhead shoots forth a fountain of being. And he shoots forth multiple forms of energy that we are only now in our most sophisticated science beginning to dimly understand. And one of those forms of energy is something called spirit. And spirit is personal power that's not confined to a body. And when I say personal power, I mean that spirit has personhood. Spirit has a mind. Spirit has a will. God is spirit, and he has a mind and a will. Angels are ministering spirits. Demons are fallen spirits. You have a spirit. If you are vitally connected to Jesus Christ, the part of you that makes you you, your spirit, will continue to exist and to be ridiculously well off in the presence of Jesus, even as your body dies and decays. If you are not vitally connected to Christ, the part of you that makes you you, your spirit, will continue to exist, separated from God's love and grace, but fully present to his wrath and his anger forever in a very direct, unmediated way. So to be vitally connected with Christ in your spirit is to have eternal life. That's what it means to be born again. It's not that I, that I made some mental decision and ticked a certain box and God noted it and put it at the computer and now that transaction's done and I can skip on down the road with my life. No, to, to, to be born again or born from above, that's another way to translate it, is to have your spirit become vitally connected to the life of Christ, to the spirit of Christ. And to have that happen is to have eternal life. And now we finally get to the heart of today's text. In verse 4, John says that the Word, the second person of the Trinity, who created everything is one who has life in him. Now, you may ask yourself, what does that mean? Why why is that important? Can't we say that everything and everyone who is alive has life in him? Well, no. No, we can't, at least not in the way that John is describing. Let me me show you something a little later on in the Gospel of John. I'm going to ask you to turn to John chapter 5 if you've got your Bible. And one of the things I worry about is these screens are making you lazy. So I want you to open your Bible and see these things for yourself. And in John chapter 5, verse 25, Jesus says something very interesting. 
John 5 and verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. He has, the Father has life in himself, and Jesus has life in himself. God is the only being in existence who has life in himself. All the other beings that are alive are only alive as long as God continues to grant that life in that fountain-like way that we were talking about a minute ago. And like the fountain, it's only a fountain as long as the pump is running. So when God brings you to life, physically and spiritually, you are alive. And you are alive spiritually and physically as long as God's pump is running and pumping life into you constantly. That's what it means in Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1, where it says that Jesus causes all things to hold together and to keep on existing. It's also what Paul means in Acts 17 and verse 28 when he's up on Mars Hill and he's in Athens and he's teaching, he's preaching to these pagans and, and he says, he quotes one of their own poets and said, this guy, this pagan got it exactly right. In him, in God, in Jesus, we live and move and have our being. That's why Jesus tells us not to worry about our life if we belong to him but rather just to, to spend the bulk of our time seeking the kingdom and its righteousness. And if you do that, Jesus says you'll have every other issue in life taken care of for you. And that's not God saying, if you're a good boy, I'll give you a cookie. That's God saying, when you are in a posture of constant seeking after the kingdom and its righteousness, you are most fully plugged in to my life. And it will flow through you abundantly and it will provide all that you need for the rest of your life. And, and if you start to understand things that way, that everything we are, we're not little machines that were wound up and then walk around independent from God, but we are rather connected to him at all times, whether we believe it or not, whether we're saved or not, we're connected to him at all times as he constantly pours life into us in one form or another. Can you see now why the fall was such a disaster and why sin is such a monstrosity? Because the life of the fallen sinful creature, whether it's a fallen angel or a fallen human being, is one of taking that life that God gives you moment by moment while pretending somehow that you are like God and you have life in yourself and you're an independent being. And then to use that life that you get from God to rebel against God and to spit in his face. It's the ultimate blasphemy. It's like, it's like God, you're not sustaining me. I'm, I'm, I'm all by myself over here and I'm just fine. I have life in myself and I'm not gonna do what you want me to do, God. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. And God's saying, you don't get your next breath and heartbeat unless I give it to you. Calvin said wonderfully, miserable men take it to act without God, take it upon themselves to act without God and they cannot even speak unless God grants it. C.S. Lewis, in one of his letters, 
I think it was letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, was exploring this issue, and he said it this way. Indeed, the only way in which I can make real to myself what theology teaches about the heinousness of sin is to remember that every sin is the distortion of an energy breathed into us. We poison the wine as he decants it into us. We murder a melody that he would play with us as the instrument. We caricature the self-portrait he would paint. Hence all sin, whatever else it is, is sacrilege. Now, the life that is in the Logos, the life that's in the Son, is the fullest and best kind of life. In the New Testament, the Greek language discriminates between different kinds of life. This life, the New Testament labels zoe, spiritual life. The animals only have bios, where we get our word biology, just physical life, animal life. Bios is often used in the New Testament to talk about the stuff we need to keep our bodies going, but it's also used to talk about the existence on earth that lost men and women have when they're blundering around in sin and darkness. They have only bios, but they don't have zoe. The saved person has both bios and zoe, has both physical life and spiritual life. And that's the difference between us and the lost. It's that our spirits have been made alive and that Jesus is pouring constantly into us this life, this being of spiritual experience and existence. Now, the, the, the Bible also says here in John chapter 1 that this, that this life is also light. It's light for men. I don't know if you've ever been in total darkness before, like where there's just no ambient light at all. There are lots of caves in the Black Hills, and there are also lots of caves in Missouri where I used to live, and I can't remember where it was that I took the tour, but I remember being on a cave tour, and we went down into the belly of this cave, and it was dark, and it was cold, and it was very deep and very far down, and the guide who was with us said, all right, everybody get ready. I want you to stand very still, and I'm going to turn off all the lights, and don't move. Don't walk around, don't do anything. I'm going to turn off all the lights for just a minute. And they turned them off. And you couldn't see literally your hand in front of your face. And it was very disorienting. If it went on for too long, it might have been terrifying to be in that kind of darkness and that's precisely the position that lost men and women are in. They're like people who wake up in the belly of some treacherous cave in total darkness, and they don't know where they are, and they don't know what dangers are lurking in the darkness, and they have no idea which way is up. They don't know if there are cliffs or ledges into which they might fall. They don't know if there are pools of water in which they might drown, and they don't know anything about where to get food. And Jesus comes then as the light, as the, in Latin, the missio dei, the missionary of God. And he brings light 
Do you remember the quote in Matthew from Isaiah? The people sitting in darkness have seen a great light. And he brings this light and he says, do you want to live? Do you want to be free of this darkness? Do you want to be rescued from this pit? Now here is the great mystery. The light, Jesus, is obviously a person. He has intentions. He has a will. He has a mind. And he's on a mission. But the darkness is also personal. It has a mind. It has a will. It has intentions. It's on a mission. And its mission is to shut out the light, to extinguish it, if at all possible. And this light comes, and it pierces the darkness. It is active. It is seeking. And the darkness fights back. It does everything it can to hide the light. Depending on which version you have, verse 5, which talks about this, could read, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Or it could read, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not comprehended it. But think about it for a minute, overcoming or comprehending, whichever is the best translation, and we'll talk about that in a minute, those are things that are done by people, by a person with a mind and a will. So the light comes in, it's alive, and the darkness pushes back, and it's alive. Now, the word in Greek, for which is translated either comprehended or overcame, simply means to lay a hold of. And it can refer to a physical struggle and subduing someone, or it can refer to a mental struggle to master an idea or a concept. That's why it's translated those two ways. So the question here is, then does verse 5 refer to Satan and his demonic host making war against the Son, but not being able to overcome him? Or does it refer to the darkness of mind that overwhelms lost men and women and keeps them from understanding the significance of Jesus? And it could be both. It could be either. Both ideas are, are found in Scripture. For instance, when Jesus tells the parable of the sower, he says the sower sows the seed, and some of the seed is scattered on the path, and the birds come and they eat it up before it has a chance to do anything. And then when he interprets the parable of the sower, Jesus says the seed is the word, the path is the hard, barren heart, and the birds are the devil. And the devil comes and he snatches the word lest the person believe. But the, the birds aren't able to eat all the seed that's scattered, and so some of it gets to fertile soil and produces a great harvest. So the birds are not able to overcome the seed. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. But if the obstacle is human obstinacy, then the scriptures describe that too, don't they? In John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, we have this, this great uh, conversation with Nicodemus, and, and Jesus gives a little monologue here, and in John chapter 3, 19, he says, and this is the judgment. 
Light has come into the world, and the people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. The foolish unbeliever can't understand, can't see how coming into the light would bring him any benefit. He can see how hiding feels better because he's done things he's ashamed of or doesn't want to get punished for or doesn't want his wife to know about or whatever. And he, but he's not able to comprehend the freedom that's offered in Jesus. And so he retreats back into the darkness. So since both translations work, I don't see why we can't have both meanings here. Maybe this is one of those happy places in the Bible where it means more than one thing at the same time. But surely we must understand something from this. If we have any understanding at all, we must understand how profoundly powerful the darkness is. How profoundly powerful the bondage is. The darkness is so powerful that no prophet, no lawgiver could overcome it. No angel, not even an, an archangel, was strong enough to overcome the darkness. The darkness is the second mightiest force, the second mightiest power that exists. It took the Word, who was with God and who was God to overcome the darkness. And that victory was unutterably costly. It was unutterably painful. As the judicial wrath of God fell on his only begotten son and he was crushed for our sake. When we think about all the evils that beset us and all the challenges facing the church, we're liable to see only natural causes. I, I, I went to the hospital on Thursday uh, to get in to see Ruth, and there was a, a police officer stationed right there, and that's the first person you talk to when you walk in the door is this police officer, very, very nice young man, African-American man, and uh, he said, why are you here? He asked everybody that question, what are you here for? And uh, I said, I'm a pastor, I'm here to see a parishioner, and his face lit up, and he said, oh, thank you for your service. And I said, no, thank you for your service, and we exchanged pleasantries for a few minutes. One of the things I love about the black community is the pastor still has just a position of honor there. It doesn't matter if the people go to church anymore. And so when I was a hospice chaplain, oh, the pastor's here, the chaplain's here, and I was always treated with respect. I could walk in neighborhoods and be safe once they knew who I was, that other people couldn't walk in and be safe because I was the pastor and I was here to take care of dying people and that was a good thing. So, so we, we, we just enjoyed that little moment of talking to each other and I went on and, and, and went up to, the, to see Ruth and spent some time with her and then came back down and as I was leaving I could hear him talking to another gentleman and he was talking, the gentleman was relating that he had just seen somebody shot in the head right in front of him. And he said, why do people do that to each other? And, and I didn't, maybe I should have, I didn't. I didn't stop and say, 
because mankind is born in sin and shapen in iniquity and they are owned by the darkness and the darkness is strong and if you don't know Jesus you're owned by the darkness too whether you own whether you realize it or not the darkness is terribly terribly strong when we look at all the evils that beset us and all the challenges facing the church, we're liable to see only natural causes. Oh, it's, you know, this or that. We see bad decisions people make out of ignorance or stupidity or malice and how they, they have bad effects in everybody's life around them. We throw up our hands in despair over the changes in culture that have slowly and inexorably eaten away at the old consensus that supported the church in her prosperity decades ago. We, we watch in horror and concern as our kids and our grandkids are pulled this way and that as they drift from or even outright reject the faith that we raise them in. And we worry for their souls and we're afraid for them, and rightly so. Where does the root of the problem lie? It's not in these secondary causes that we can see and that, frankly, we can do very little about anyway. The root of the problem is the darkness. It is the power and the wicked genius of hell. It's the fact that Satan is the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and we can do something about that. You can't control what's happening on university campuses or in Washington, D.C. or anywhere else, but you have an influence over the darkness. You see, Jesus, the Word, didn't simply come into the world to save a few people and to get them to heaven when they die. He came to overcome the darkness. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And he decreed that he would give us his followers, his disciples, the dignity and honor of helping in that endeavor. In other words, he drafted us into an army, and we are in the army of heaven. And he could have done it all by himself, but he condescended to give us an absolutely critical role in that process. That's why the Bible uses all the military imagery that it uses. For instance, Jesus said he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And we tend to think about the gates of hell as something that's coming after us. No, 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 no. Gates are not offensive structures. Gates are defensive structures. Gates are that which you close when you are being attacked. Hell is hiding behind those gates, waiting for the church to attack, knowing that Jesus has decreed that those gates would one day fall to us as we attack. Paul said that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, that we're not waging war according to the flesh, that our weapons have divine power to destroy strongholds, that we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that's raised up against the knowledge of God. That's 2 Corinthians and chapter 10. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but instead we wrestle against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers which are reigning 
over this present darkness and against the forces of evil in the heavenly places. Christian, you were created, elected to salvation, and redeemed so that demons might be subject to you, so that strongholds and lofty things raised against God might crumble at your word while everyone watches, amazed. You are the predator. Hell is the prey. But Satan has convinced the church that the battle lies elsewhere and that the weapons of the modern church's warfare are explicitly carnal weapons. They are programs rather than prayer, self-help seminars instead of biblical preaching, growth strategies and marketing techniques adopted from the business world, psychologizing so that we boost your self-esteem rather than a rebuke that confronts your sin. It's entertainment masquerading as worship. It's electing Republicans to try and win a culture war that is an effect, not a cause, while being too lazy and disengaged and frankly timid and frightened to fight the real battle, which is evangelizing lost people and teaching them how to follow Christ until they can do consistently what Jesus tells them to do. Ephesians chapter 6 says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The modern church just says we wrestle not, period. And if we continue to wrestle not, the church will continue to crumble and the culture will continue to slide into darkness because all the culture is is the consensus of most of the people. And if most of the people are lost, if most of the people are sliding into depravity, if most of the people are degrading themselves and debasing themselves ever more deeply, then that's what the culture will do. But if most of the people come to Jesus, then most of the people will be different and the culture will take a different road. The hour is very late. The battle is not lost yet, but it soon will be if things continue as they are. We can still make a tremendous difference in the outcome, every prayer meeting attended, every scripture taught to one of these little ones on a Wednesday or a Sunday morning, every work of compassion and shalom to the unbelievers in your neighborhood or at your office or in your school, every time you share the gospel with a lost person, every time you mortify your flesh, Every time you choose worship over sports or fishing or sleeping in on the Sabbath day, every time you kneel and pray, every time you open your Bible and drink the scriptures in like iced tea on a hot day, men, every time you lead your family in spiritual things, every time you serve as an elder or a deacon with diligence and integrity, you hack away at the darkness and you weaken the gates of hell. There's a wonderful old hymn. Rise up, O men of God. Have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of Kings. Because that's what you're here for. That's what God elected you for. That's what he saved you for. 
That's what he invites you into. Come, join the battle with me. You know, I, I know a bunch of guys that went to Iraq and Afghanistan, a bunch of them. We had a bunch of them in my church. It was a, a, just National Guard everywhere. And, uh, and you, you talk to them after a while about their experience, and they came back, some of them with PTSD pretty bad and things like that, but every one of them said, I, I, I would go back there in a heartbeat. Because there's something about being in battle, shoulder to shoulder with other men and now women, and you're in the fudge, and you're shooting, and, you're, and things are going crazy, but you know that this person next to you has your back, and you're bound to that person in a way that I can't even explain. And I loved it. I didn't like the war, but I loved the feeling of being in a combat unit and doing everything that was necessary to be done in a team environment. That's what Jesus is calling us to. It's not come and admire yourself in the mirror of the church. It's come, lay down your life, put on the uniform, pick up the weapons, get the training, and go fight. And when Jesus fights with you, we win. Amen.